Hello everybody and welcome back to BizPod, Haven Intervention Support Network's podcast and I'm delighted once again to be joined by a very special guest, Mr Finton O'Regan. Hello Finn. Hello, uh, how are you doing Sam? Yeah, not too bad. I'm, I'm conscious that I'm recording this in my conservatory and the whole world and his dog are doing um, lots of DIY, putting me to shame really. So if the background noise is coming through, apologies to everybody. Hopefully it shouldn't be for too long. Um, and it's probably worth mentioning, uh, for anyone that's listening to this for the first time, I had Finton on before, uh, so it's worth going back and listening to that episode. We talk about Finn's career, uh, we talk about the comorbidity and sometimes misdiagnosis and confusion between ADHD and conduct disorder. And it's also worth mentioning that both myself and Finn will be co-hosting a webinar uh, on the 2nd of June. Uh, which is kind of a follow-up to one we've done before, but if you missed that one, don't worry, you'll get the fully recorded webinar in your ticket when you purchase for part two. And part two, we are going to be going into detail and depth about comorbid factors for ADHD, um, such as autism, conduct disorder, oppositional defiance disorder. But I've got Finn back because today I wanted to talk to him about the education system, his kind of experience in it, um, share some of my thoughts. I'm quite often... You know, I sort of self-accuse myself of getting on my soapbox about the education system because for me, I don't think it's working for, well, quite a wide number of our young people. Um, but, it, but I don't work within that education system and I'm by no means an expert in it at all. I mean, I wasn't even, I don't think I even made it to the end of my education officially. So, <laughs> um, so it'd be good to, to bounce some ideas back with you, Finn, and, and see what the sort of current state of play is. Um, I guess that as a starting point then, what are your thoughts on the current system and how it suits our sort of neurodiverse uh, people, young people? Well, I think if we say current system, we'd almost have to, we're, we're kind of make it up to go along, I think, with regards to uh, uh, school system. Uh, in fact, I was talking to somebody the other day about, um, they, uh, they said to me, well, what is it you do? And I said, well, I am primarily a lie trainer. And um, when there's not much live training going on right now, is there really? That's not going to happen for some time. And uh, my other you know, interest is, uh, what, what, do you, what do you train on? He said, well, mostly I train on trying to prevent children from being excluded from school or at least trying to help schools support those children at, at risk of. And there's not much, um, not much mileage in that right now, is there really? So, so I think at the very, very current time, you know, obviously the, 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 with the COVID-19, you know, with schools being out and uh, return to school being uh, somewhat up in the air, um, that, that's something else to really talk about. But I think if we just go back to where we were before the, the COVID-19, um, I think um, I have some thoughts on that. And, and I think, you know, if we look at children who are at risk, and I think, Sam, you probably see a lot of those um, students uh, or young people yourself, mm -hmm. um, I, I share your concerns right now with the actual school system in to a certain extent and I, I you know I'm a former head myself and I'm a teacher I'm not bashing teachers at all because they have a, you know very difficult and very you know have a very sort of you know interesting job as well but the policies behind education were, were, were very encouraging there for a while if we go back uh, even further than that uh, to when exclusions were really at a peak you know back in the early uh, early 20, uh, 21st century, there was a big push towards reducing school exclusions and schools were more open to uh, changes in structures and policies, um, inclusion, obviously 
hack came along where special schools were, where many were shut down and schools were therefore more inclusive. And I think they embraced that to a, a large extent. I think the policies we had then of Every Child Matters really were very, very crucial in, in forcing down the exclusion rate. But that hasn't been happening now for some time. And over the last three or four years, we've seen a, a steady rise in exclusions coming up to the um, the rate in which they were before. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think the, the Every Child Matters ship has certainly sailed. And I think the policies pretty much which were um, purported, and there's other issues out as well, there's academization, there's competition within schools and those things. But we do have a behavior czar. And when your behavior czar is basically saying the few shouldn't affect the rights of the many, and that's uh, that's that's something that governments are are very much looking at and giving, you know, that that's not helpful, I don't think. And um, and for the reason is is that you know you, it, once you start that's the thin end of the wedge, really. Once you start saying that, you know, every class has got the tricky, you know, every every class has got trickiest kid in the classroom, and if he he or she's not there, someone else will be. You kept on going, you left with yourself. So I think the the, the current trends prior to the COVID nineteen have been concerning me for some time yeah that's a, yeah, a lot lot to digest there i mean the idea that the, the few shouldn't what is it the few shouldn't affect the rights of the many we, yeah it, it was it was basically a look we all know that if we have a child ourselves in the class if there's one child disrupting that child's you know situation his life chances his exams we know obviously we don't want that but the the premise has been that the few shouldn't disrupt the, the, the many you know, the, the, where do you end with that? If I go to what is the main reason for both permanent and uh, now I have particular interest in this, and it might be that people don't agree, but the biggest reason for both full, full exclusion or permanent exclusion and fixed term exclusion is not drugs, it's not um, violence, it's not um, uh, damage to property something called persistent disruptive behavior it's low level stuff that builds up it's not most permanent exclusions are a culmination of fixed term exclusions reaching the amount of time so it's this low level stuff which builds up and builds up and that's been the same for many years and it's my belief that we need to be getting to grips with what permanent disruptive behavior is and because i can tell you the second fixed term exclusion doesn't change situation the sixth or seventh isn't and I'm afraid that has been carried on. I, I think schools have been less reluctant, if you like, really, um, to, to to support kids in the PDB sort of like framework, not because they don't want to, but because there's a trend which is really that, well, you haven't got time, you haven't got the resources. I don't think, I think the willingness is there. Um, but I think if you have a if you have policies and you have a, an advisor who is 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 saying this quite publicly and and he's got the government's ear, it's certainly not helping the situation. No, and, and you know, I guess the, the the pressure of results and getting the majority of the class to a, a certain point, and if yeah. there's someone in there that's yeah. affecting that. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we should never exclude anybody, and there's reasons for that. I mean, the second biggest, second fixed, second big reason for, for permanent exclusions is um, is uh, aggression from a pupil to another pupil. Uh, I believe a lot of that is actually caused by bullying, actually, and a lot of individuals who are 
them. But anyway, there's another issue on that. In primary school, it's an assault member of staff. So we can't have staff being assaulted. We can't have drugs in school. We can't have weapons being brought into school. We, we've got to have health and safety issues foremost and, 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 you know, in terms of people's health and security. I get all that. But if your biggest reason is PDB, I, I said before, there ought to be some degree of screening after the second fixed term exclusion for PDB. Sorry, but when if there, you was say, some, when there you was some kind PDB. of screening, then you would possibly be able to avert the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and ultimately the last permanent exclusion. What, what do you mean by PDB? Sorry, Phil. I'm it's, being yes, it turns the, it's the, see, this is interesting because, I mean, someone like yourself, Sam, and most people don't know, mm. persistent disruptive behaviour. Okay. That yeah. is the reason given for the, 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 that's the largest reason which has been established both every year, it's every year, not just this year, it's every right. year, for full term and uh, for permanent exclusion and for fixed term exclusions. PDB. Right. That's such, even as a term, that's incredibly vague and... Correct, correct. Yeah, could be used, correct. you know, in lots of ways, by, in different ways by different people. So that's, I imagine that's, that lack of clarity in, within a system would be quite dangerous, I would have thought. Well, yeah, very much so. And as I said, I'm not, you know, I would have a particular view on what a lot of individuals, the traits those individuals have. And there's many reasons for that. The risk factors could be in the child, it could be to do with, you know, the, the maybe some possible, you know, inconsistent parental supervision over the years. It could be the community factors. It could be, I think a lot of it actually is also within school. In fact, there's four sets of risk factors. There's a mental health and behavior report that came out in 2016. You've always had risk factors in the child, in the family, in the community, but they added factors for school, you know, and, 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 and bullying particularly, and picking on people who are vulnerable and different has always happened in schools. But yeah. um, if you look at, you know, those other reasons for permanent exclusions, a lot of it is to do with socialisation issues. Now, schools can't be doing everything, and you've only got six hours a day, and you've only got 200 days a year, actually, Sam, because they're out of school a lot more than they're in school yeah. while they work. And so, you know, obviously other factors play a huge part, but um, you're right, the vagueness of that term uh, and that every year it happens to be the main reason for both permanent and fixed. Someone should be asking more questions about this. With um, just backpedalling a bit to, to something you said early on, you know, I mean, so back in, I think you were talking about the sort of the turn of the 20th century, so back in 2000 when the Every Child Matters thing came out and it's interesting for me because back then, I think about 2006 was when I started working at CEDAR, so I remember the Every Child Matters back then. Obviously, we're not an educational setting. And you said that that was when they started to kind of um, disband lots of the specialist schools and look at more a more inclusive model. Do you well, think... I think it, it, was, it was a culmination. I mean, the, 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 that obviously came out through, through one particular incident, which obviously was dreadful, and, and they made schools safer mm. for children but that whole approach it was very much a child first approach and it just happened to be around the same sort of time that a lot of inclusiveness was being you know a lot of people were a lot of specialist schools were basically being um not shut down but they were being you know they, they were they, they well you know some of them were adapted put that way you know you had a sort of like a you know some of the some of the more moderate to mild were basically seen as being um 
you know, able to go into mainstream schools, and mainstream schools adapted to that. They started having things like nurture classes, you know. There was a lot of specialist support. I was a member of um, someone under Barry Carpenter, and, and we were given all sorts of, there was resources to, to do this, and, and we, you know, we, we were able to help training and, and help with, you know, set up sort of like alternative provisions within school. There was a lot of, um, but, then, but then like a lot of things, you know, policies change, and then it had to be somewhat absorbed, so it was a bit of a perfect storm, really, you know, in that, uh, I think, at the end of the, at the end of the sort of like where the resources came out, you know, from the inclusive policies we had, which were which were good, they were good. They were quite vast at the time. They were generous, and um, and they, it helps it helped the transition. But then, the, you know, as you said, results results were very much then the sort of focus. And I think, you know, academies have been fantastic for certain communities. They have revitalised schools. They've regenerated the buildings are better and everything else. But you know, the, but there's no doubt that some academies have, you know, have also been quite competitive um, when it comes to results, uh, and you know, and, and put that that forward. And I think, I just think some of our individuals and children and parents who went for more inclusive mainstream schools got got caught in the crossfire. So I get one question I wanted to sort of throw at you. It's a it's a hard one to answer, so I won't expect miracles, but. Um, do you think inclusion works? Do you think it? I mean, so I guess the, 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 that's a bit of a naughty question, really. If if, no, if all resources were there, then I guess that's one consideration. But if in the current system with the current resources, is it yeah. a realistic expectation? I think it, I think it's. Uh, I, I know where you're going with it, and, and you know, in, you know what happens in, in education. You know, we we, we go from one thing to another and back to that thing again. You know, you hang around long enough, you see things happen like with fashion you know you know if you hang around long for fashion flares will be back again soon and i was wearing them when i was younger and they've probably been back twice and they'll come back again in another 10 years so i think the answer to your question is yeah, if it's funded properly it, it can i think i would say though that with the results culture we had uh, mainstream schools you know aren't able necessarily to be as flexible um as 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 a specialist school can be um, and I think there's a two reasons for that. Number one is you are somewhat more um, constricted by the curriculum, by the policies, by the procedures. And the other thing is, is that you, you know, you 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 will have staff in there who um, some staff will want to teach traditional learners. You'll have other staff who can teach anybody, um, and you'll have some in the middle. Whereas in a specialist school, you have staff who who know. Who, who know what, what they're doing, and not so much know what they're doing, but they know who they're getting. And, and, and you know, they've taken a view that they, they, they do enjoy or they would rather work with non-traditional learners. And you can have, like, if you're doing eight or nine subjects in a mainstream school and you have two or three teachers who really just don't do the non-traditional learners, the whole ship will come down. So to answer your question is, I think that you need to have, you need to have both options. You need to have obviously inclusive schools, well staffed, well um, resourced. Um, but for some students, I will say that in the, you know um, specialist schools will be a better educational option because you'll have the flexibility and you'll have a, a more uh, consistent group of staff who've chosen to work with non-traditional learners. Do you think? Um, do you think the system or the curriculum as it's set up gives teachers and staff enough room to? to work inclusively or is the results is the pressure for results just 
you know, making it well, impossible. Think, without, to without talking about education secretaries and, and, and governments and things like that, I think most people are aware that there was a push, you know, five, six years ago by a particular education secretary for us to uh, catch up with all the people in South Korea and in, 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 in Shanghai and in... Um, you know, in other and, and in where's the other place? So uh, you know, uh, uh, Singapore and places like that. And there was definitely a push towards that. And I think again, you know, that did raise the ratchet. And I think let's face it, parents wanted it. You know, parents um, voted for it in a way. Not maybe every parent, but it was a it was a, obviously a popular routine. And let's face this, you know, uh, the few shouldn't affect the rights of the many is also a fairly popular. Uh, parental perspective, you know, why should that one be shouting out in class and chucking my? So you've got got those sort of things. So I think um, you know that those these things do happen at a level which does you know filter down. So I think I think teachers and schools and head teachers, you know, probably they don't have the flexibility. They do have the pressures to follow the the, the you know the government line, so to speak, and and what other schools are doing. Uh, you've got Herculean head teachers and teachers out there. Don't don't get me wrong, Herculean, and they are making every single possible adjustment and adaptation they can. And also the expectations of parents for their children have increased massively. I mean, there's an you know there's an A to Z of SEN. There's a book I saw recently, an A to Z. There's about nine under A. I haven't got to the B's yet. You know, so it is. You know, it's the old thing, really. It's a bit like right now, when you're trying to get it right to go back to school, when's it going to be safe? We're never going to really know. Um, head teachers will have to make that decision uh, within context with local authorities. But in the end of the day, parents, I think, will decide on behalf of their children if it's safe to go back to school. I mean, being a head myself, former head myself, you're not going to please everybody all the time. It's like a snow day. You have a snow day, half the parents think, you know, know are happy haven't got to get in the car to get the child to school and the other half are unhappy because they've got to stay at home or they've got to get the child to school you know so you're never going to please everybody uh or got to look after him sorry at home or you know it's so it's a hard one to get right it's interesting i mean i don't want to this is not a political podcast but the thing that irks me with all politics is that is that very fact that people have voted for a particular party that happened to have an education policy like that, they may not have individually voted because that's the education they wanted, if that makes sense. You know, they, they might have voted for that party. Either. Yeah, I, as you said, you, know, you can get into hot water in this because yeah. it's opinion, you know, no one, there's no right answer, there's no wrong answer. It, it's, but you are, to a certain extent, um, if you're a parent of a child who has autism or ADHD, it is it is often very much the, uh, and schools vary so much, even within change, you know, I mean, I, I generally think you've got three types of teacher in a secondary school, you've got those that get the quirky kids, you've got those that don't, you've got those in the middle, they're not quite sure, and I think what gets the ones in the middle is, is a head teacher and a pastoral team who are, who want to work with quirky kids, that filters down and and you will get your middle third, and also you'll pick staff, you'll recruit staff who share your vision. So, you know, it is uh, it is a bit of a lottery sometimes, and that's why I say to parents when they're choosing a school, particularly a secondary school, you know, you really, you know, you, you, you basically do need to be asking them in advance of 
what may happen if he or she does this or that and the other. I, I think sometimes parents, and I mean, some kids do change and go to primary and secondary, but secondary is a big ask for kids who have, have you know, have, you know, learning difficulties and, and behavioural challenges because of the variables being so much bigger. So, uh, yeah, and I think my point is, is that having an alternative, uh, I mean, Centre Academy, where I was ahead, just to give you an example, I mean, we had a lower school, middle school, upper school. We're set in a kind of an American way, but basically what that meant was in the lower school, it was up to 8 to 11-ish, and they had essentially one teacher most of the day, like in a primary. In the middle school, it was kind of 11 to 14, we basically had four teachers teaching them eight or nine subjects. So, for example, math teacher taught them, taught them science, the history teacher taught them English. They got four members of staff, Knows a child better, relationship, teach subjects. And in high school, you had more, more staff, you know. So, that, But I think when you go to secondary school, you, you, you know, you've got nine staff, nine different subjects, nine interpretations of how the rules and the policies run. You know, you can see it's a big ask, you know, to get consistency across that, that range of people, particularly for someone who's a non-traditional learner. Well, we've kind of we've kind of strayed towards it already, but, I, you know, I like to make sure every podcast is got something in there of value for, for parents and professionals listening so you've already I, I think I'm going to eke one out already but I was thinking of sort of tips for parents when it comes to you know supporting your child through the education system as it is um, obviously the parents I tend to work with the parents that tend to listen to this have got young people that would fit that quirky mold or with maybe a, an attached diagnosis or you know an additional need um, I, I think your first thing in there that you're saying is is how important it is to have an open communication with the school before they go, particularly secondaries. And that's something I, I quite often talk to parents about is actually, you know, be very honest with what behaviours your child may or may not be at risk of, of displaying because you want to get an honest feedback of, of how they're going to deal with it and what their policies are for dealing with it. Um, rather than, you know, we've had parents in the past who, and I understand why they do it, they're kind of reluctant to share everything with you. They don't want you to kind of shut the door and say, no, you're not, you're, you know, they're not coming in. Um, but I think, you know, what you said there about the need to kind of get a feel for the the top members, of the key members of staff's attitude is, is such an important point because, like you said, it kind of cascades down through the staff team. Um, yeah, I, I would I would concur, and I completely understand as well why parents would be reluctant to mention instances because a it was negative, b you want to move on, c it might not happen in a new institution. But a, a predictor of future behaviour can be past behaviour. So I, I think as much as it's difficult to you, you know you need to be see. Here's the deal: if you don't do it and something happens, then you know he's already made friends. He's made you know he's, you've obviously uh, he's got the uniform on. You know you you're in the system, and then coming out of it can be very very disheartening and, and you know low self esteem. And I don't want to go back. So I think you do have to be at least you know fairly clear about what is likely to happen if this does. And if you get you know if you're open about it, and they come back to you and say, oh hang on, we didn't know about this, and you say, well we did talk about this. So you know, and you've always got recourse, but every incident happens because of a reason and there could be some antecedent you didn't, you know, it could have been some trigger that wasn't dealt with with, with correctly. But I can only tell you that, when, you know, when people came to the school and I was ahead of it, they came often afterwards, people were asked them why did they come. They sometimes said, not trying to be polite, they came because of me, they said. It wasn't because of me, me, but it was because they, I'd obviously made them feel 
comfortable about what we could do. Mm. And I did try and tease out from them the likelihood of this, that, or the other. And uh, and and we had those open conversations. And not everyone came in, and not everyone not everyone did did make it through. But in the end, I think as parents, you have to use your instincts. But I will say to you, if you you know, uh, you know, if you have, you get that sort of feeling that there's someone who's who's going to care for your son or daughter, then it's likely that person, if he's a head teacher, will be recruiting staff who have similar similar views. Does that make sense? Mm, you, you, you know, I can I can tell as a head teacher if it makes parents feel better. I knew the first two minutes of a meeting if I was going to hire somebody. It didn't matter what background they had. It didn't matter what qualifications. They obviously had qualifications to teach. And it'd be cleared and stuff. But I knew the first two minutes. In fact, my secretary sometimes would tell me I would like this person. Now, obviously, so what you do is you, you do pick staff in your own manner. So it's really important to look at the head and understand, you know, and, and get an instinct. You won't always be right, but it's, you know, I think it's a bit of a, it's not, it's a very unscientific way of choosing it, I know, but it's the best I can give you. No, I think that's a really, really important point. Um, I mean, I guess to, to throw one of mine in there, with you know, which we've kind of touched on already, I think for any parent that is working with a school, you have to kind of balance the need for your, your child's, you know, obviously your child is going to be at the forefront of your mind and, you know, your, your, your sole focus really. Um, but we have to, again, remember they're working with it in that system of, you know, not affecting the needs of the many for the few. Um, but actually also recognizing the amount of pressure on teachers and staff and how, you know, how, underfunded and under-resourced certain schools are whilst that's not your necessarily your um fault or problem as a, as a parent it, you, you i really do recommend with parents that they they keep an open um constructive and collaborative dialogue rather than trying to be too confrontational you know i, I work with a lot of parents that have had to spend their entire life knocking down doors shouting loudest so that they get heard for support you know um having them their parenting judged and all that kind of sort of negative feeling and it's sometimes the hardest thing in the world to kind of just keep going and working alongside a school if they're being a bit resistant at first to some of the changes that you're, that you're talking about oh, i um, totally agree and I, I think it is very hard it's very emotional you know, you love your children, you want the best for them, and you're frustrated by them as well, you know, and, but I think you get more done, it's a bit like, you know, I used to be, uh, uh, I used to work for DHL, DHL, the, um, the uh, courier company, and we used to have a job where um, uh, we'd, um, it's called tracing, so basically documents were being, you know, you picked them up in London, and you took them off to to, I don't know, to America or whatever, you know, so you deliver documents. It was basically 10 years and things like that, really. So I was on tracing, documents used to get lost. And sometimes, you know, someone in Twickenham, for example, might have tried to send a document. They didn't always go internationally. They wanted to send to Kingston, you know. To, and sometimes, of course, documents would end up in Kingston, Jamaica. Now, you only want to go down five, 10 minutes down the road on a motorbike, and it's ended up in Kingston, Jamaica. Well, you know, obviously the client who's missed this is going to be absolutely on the phone and going to be furious, and he'll be shouting at you and shouting at you, and he's frustrated. And what he used to do was he used to keep the phone just you know, a couple of minutes away from your head, and then once you let them just get it off their chest, 
And then once you come back and you say, well, how are we going to do it from here? So, you know, and, and it was just like, but when I got a parent or sorry, a client or they bring up and said something like um, in the same situations and, up to, and he said, right, he get on the phone and he'd say something like, I'm very disappointed in your service. Oh, they were the ones you thought, oh dear, we're going to have some problems here now because, you know, they were very sequential. They had the, they, they knew the policies, they knew the comeback, you know, and you knew you're in for a much difficult time. So I think when parents are going in to talk to schools, I know you're emotional, I know you think, but basically, you'll get listened to a lot more if you keep it calm, considered, you know, and, and keep it to the, you know, keep it very specific about what the issues are, what the policies say, what you said before was going to happen when this did that, the other. Show some consideration for them. Show some consideration for the other kids in the class. That teacher's got 30 kids. You get you, you get a relationship with them. You get rapport with them. You get there, and they'll start thinking, oh, well, she, she does think about me. That's how you get things done. Mm. You're doing it on behalf of your child. I get that. But the parents who would... Uh, who would come in like that and and also and if you don't get the answer they want say right well i'm sorry i'll be bringing you back tomorrow those are the parents that caught my attention sam those yeah. are the parents that caught my attention well i think i mean another you know in in covering one tip you're throwing out another in there but like the idea of being specific i think is really important i've supported parents in meetings before and you know, I've said to them beforehand, look, let's just put down three really clear goals that you want to be achieved. Because with the best will in the world, if you go into a meeting and, and your demand of the school is something like, I want you to support my child's emotional needs better, that's a bit like the PBD or, you know, whatever the label was. That's a quite a vague thing, isn't it? It's you too know? woolly. It's too woolly. Yeah, it's too woolly. Right. And so you, right. you want clear ideas, of, you know, rather than just suggesting what, they aren't doing suggesting what they can do um but also maybe again minimizing the amount of information you're going to put forward because you know it is an emotive situation you are going to end up offloading lots of stuff that's difficult and and that's fine and valid and the school should listen to that to a point in certain meetings um but you want those specific things that you want done so that it doesn't all kind of get lost in the ether i think um so, yeah. I, I no, I agree. I agree, and it's hard. It's hard, but you. It's like if you are doing anything these days, and you ring up and you want something done. You know, you you know that you know that's the policy. And now, at this time, you know it's going to be even more likely that people will have less. Uh, how can I put less patience for situations? You know, there's, there's a there's a process that you have to go through. I think not just in terms of the actual uh, technical side of it, but in terms of the actual communication side of it. Okay, well, um, we've done half an hour, Finn, uh, which is probably about a, a good point. But what what I did want to just ask you, so we're going to go a little bit longer, if that's all right with you. Yeah, sure. Um, COVID, Corona, the big C. Uh, well, this year anyway. Um, yeah. come in and sort of bugging everything up for everyone, really. Do you think, um, there's a two-part question, really, do you think now would be a good point to make some changes? Uh, do you think there are some obvious changes that could be made at this particular uh, time? I mean, I, I, to be honest, it's very hard to know exactly. I, I'm just pleased I'm not a head teacher right now, yeah. like, because the challenge is to do this and keep everyone happy staff 
much. I mean, I think parents will very much march with their feet. You know, I think they'll decide themselves whether they feel schools are safe um, or insecure. Um, I think staff, it's very hard for staff to maybe to decide that decide themselves. And I think that's going to, so really it's very difficult to know what school's going to look like. I think, I have a, I have a, I mean, so I, <laughs> it swings roundabouts really. I think the social distancing um, a plan for teaching in terms of classrooms is actually exactly the model that we had at my school. They had single seats and chairs. They were, they were, they were not, they were not, they were not, they were touching each other, so to speak. They were, they were all in single seats and chairs in a grid type thing, like an examination room. We found that was the best place with booths around the side. So you could find that the actual classroom structure might stop someone leaning over and punching him or kicking him or whatever. It could work better actually, mm. in one sense. I think um, where I have some concerns about is obviously um, non-structured time and, and, and how social isolation will be will be uh, managed and, and thought about and uh, and dealt with because we know that non-structured time is more likely to be, you know, impulsive actions and people lashing out. And um, whereas in the past, there would have been a report, there would have been, you know, uh, a, you know a process which you've gone through. But I, I'm a bit worried about how, you know, kids with ADHD traits and ASD traits, to a certain extent, will be judged in uh, certainly non-structured time. But ironically, classroom time, you know, with smaller numbers of people in there and, you know, single seats and desks, however they would do it, could actually be, you know, quite in a, in a perverse way beneficial. Although, I, you know, but it's too early to know what systems people are going to have and what they're going to use. And, and um, you know, I, I think... I mean, it's been interesting, I think, for some children, uh, the freedom of being at home has obviously been different in certain families, but there's obviously some learning being done. But we know that certain children are quite investigative, particularly if they have these traits. They might have been doing things which have, they wouldn't have had a flexibility doing in school, whether it was like, I don't know, you know, making, you know, making cakes or, or um, I don't know, you know, washing the car or whatever. I, I don't know, you know, the sort of things that you would... As well as computer time, so you know, I think I think it, I, I just think that when we're going to a policy where it's going to be, you know, getting back to what is a traditional school setting, I do think there's not going to be so much patience and flexibility for your non-traditional learners. Does that make sense? Because I think we'll be concentrating on. I suppose heads will feel they've got to get the basics right for the majority of students. So I do have some concerns about how non-traditional learners may fare during this process. Yeah, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a difficult time for everybody. But like you say, I mean, there might actually be a few adjustments that can be quite helpful. I mean, you know, coming from a mainly um, autism background, I think that the smaller class sizes alone are going to be yeah. advantageous for some. I, I would echo what you said about the need to... I mean, you know, if I was in that position, I'd be looking to find ways to actually probably add more structure to the unstructured time. Maybe exactly. No, I mean, maybe. That's, the way, that's the way it should be done now. But it's. Um, yeah. But my, my view is that if they don't do that, I have some concerns, you know, if they feel they can't. But you've got to remember all this is going to take staffing as well. And, yeah. um, you know, you're not going to have less staff. I mean, I think you might be getting dropped off and picked up there might not be unstructured time you know you might not have the opportunity to do that so that yeah, would that put a, be a way to do stress it. on parents and 
a lot of parents tell me, you know, as soon as they leave the school, they, you know, they get through school and when they go home, they go wild. And partly because of that is they've almost, you know, they've reserved, not reserved for their parents, but they've kept it together all day. So, you know, that I think puts a lot of strain and stress on parents. I, I've got to say, as much as you can, you need to structure your unstructured time at home for parents. You know, that's not always easy to do with location, economics, you know, other siblings as well. But, you know, um, yeah, it, it's, um, it's you know, change isn't always bad, as you said, Sam. There's opportunities there as well. And, and maybe we'll, we'll, you know, maybe we'll find that it, it'll be a different way. I see homeschooling um, mushrooming. After this, I really do see the yeah. amount of people um, deciding to do homeschooling in increasing massively. It's already been pretty high. The US is usually the US, like them, I don't want to say like them below them, but you know, we look at America and say, oh, well, you know, why do they do, why do they do that? They don't do things the same way we do, but they, they do have a kind of like a can do approach. And when something's not working, you know, kind of fix it. I think us. When we grew up, Sam, I don't know about you, but the idea of going to see a counsellor was like, well, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But in America, they view it as, well, if you've got a broken leg, go and see a doctor. If your head's not going well, go and see a doctor, you know? Yeah. And it's, we're getting that now. Whereas I think in the US, like what, what they found, parents, is is that they found that the school can't meet their, their, their child's you know needs. Um, and particularly with technology now, they'll, they'll, they'll do it themselves. So that, again, needs parents who have time commitment you know the um the the, the you know the, the i suppose the sometimes the machines it's going to be you know the internet to do this but they've done that i, I suspect and i knew a head teacher of international uh, international school in london um who has an international school a traditional school um has three children and uh he's the head of an international school all three kids are homeschooled get that mm. so you know i see i see homeschooling uh to an extent you know i think there'll be a lot more people who decide to do it that way and i mean that should you know that's i think one of the difficult one of the main problems with homeschooling is certainly from speaking to parents that have taken that option is you're kind of then left out in the cold you're left to your own devices and actually if there was something set up to sort of guide the parents that wanted to take that option you know, that could be a really useful resource and a really well, that, alternative that's, provision. That's the school, Sam, that, you know, that someone out there's going to sponsor you and me to open. That's what it is. What, uh, a so we need a donation sent to Sam as soon as possible. And then uh, we'll open a school like that. And, um, yeah, and we'll hire the staff ourselves. And, uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. What, like an on, but you say staff, but then it wouldn't be, would it, if it's homeschooling? Or are you talking about staff well, coming in? I was talking about a, a something in between. Oh, okay. I thought that's what you were saying. Yeah, no, well, there, there are some proud area, so yeah. Yeah, there are some provisions like that starting up down here where you've got kind of um, ex teachers and enablers yeah. working to sort of take the young person out and do a bit of their education. Mm. So, you know, I mean, for me, I'm. You know, I, I will I will end this on my soapbox, but I, I do think that the this the choice that we made all those years ago to follow a model that was more results driven has proven by the you know the, the rise in exclusions, the rise in number of um, young people's mental health, which is not obviously exclusively down to education, but I personally think it plays a part. I think it's now time to maybe. Well, I I, I, those that. Things. I, mean, I had that view ago when someone said to me about well aren't they going to fall behind the people in Singapore and the 
people in Taiwan and things like that. And, um, you know, and at the time, my, my daughter was 13. I said, look, she's 13 right now. She can't do calculus, but, um, but she can tell me the name of uh, Ross's monkey in Friends, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, by the way, is, is Marcel. Marcel cool. and, and, you know, she's, she's had a more balanced education. Um, and what's happening, actually, alternatively, in places like Singapore and Taiwan and South Korea and Shanghai, places... They've been having real problems with, um, you know, with children um, not having a balanced education, mm. you know, knowing stuff but not knowing personal skills, uh, had problems with depression, all sorts of things like that. Because suddenly now 95 is no good. You've got to get a 96 or 97 or you fail. They're coming the other way, actually. They're, follow, they're trying to follow what we're doing and have a more balanced education. So mm. it's ironic that, you know, it took those sort of things to happen for them to realise that. Definitely. Okay, Finn. Well, it's been educational as always. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know whether I should divulge to the listeners that you, you sometimes refer to us as the what was it, the Anton Deck of? We're the Anton Deck of this world. Yeah, yeah, right. we are the Anton Deck. Yeah, we're an Anton. And yeah. we and, and we did decide that I was Ant. Well, the, only only because you're slightly bigger than me. Not because uh, of a drinking smaller. problem. That's the only reason. That's the only reason. <laughs> okay. You were, you were uh, I was obviously a little scrum half, and you were a back row forward, so that's why we decided it. Um, thank you to everyone that's been listening. Uh, we didn't really come at this with much of a plan other than to talk education. I certainly always find it interesting. So if you guys listening do, please give us feedback, leave comments, let us know which episodes you like, which ones you want to hear more of, what you want to hear more of, because um, we really want to build the podcast around what people want to listen to, obviously. Um, if you're interested in some of the work that, you know, Finton does and, you know, taking advantage of his expertise, uh, do come along to the next webinar. Like I said, it's on June the 2nd, and it's going to be a part two of a three-part course on ADHD. But like I said, if you miss part one, you will get the recording of that included in the ticket. Uh, and then part three will be will be released in a, in a couple of weeks after part two. Uh, I'll put some of the links up under this little podcast so you can check that below. If not, you can always go to uh, online. that's cedaonline.org.uk and you can head to the business section and you'll list you get a list of all our upcoming webinars. You can follow us um, at Business Exeter on Facebook or I think it's at Cedar Biznet on Twitter. So thank you for listening, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.